This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Radio Podcast. Today we have the NBC News of the World from the evening of November 21st, 1942. It includes updates on the war from London, Algiers, Washington, and New York. World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts where you can find links to past episodes as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good evening, everyone. This is John W. Vandercook speaking for Alka-Seltzer, bringing you the news of the world. Washington is now certain that yesterday's report of the sinking of five more Jap warships in the Solomon's Battle was not a duplication. So our Guadalcanal Sea victory turns out to have been all the greater. Secretary Knox now ventures the prediction that our position there is very secure. And as a worthy byproduct, William Halsey, who ran that show, is now a full admiral. In North Africa, where all anti-Axis political prisoners are now to be released by an Allied amnesty order, Hitler has landed fresh reinforcements. But in the first armed clash between our forces and the Axis troops, the German armored column was turned back. And this bulletin has just reached us from NBC's own correspondent, Paul Archenard in France. Advice from the French frontier is that Marshal Vagon is now in the Königstein prison in Germany from which General Giraud fled shortly some months ago. And now a word from Charles Lyon. Friends, here's something to remember for this coming weekend. If irregular hours and too much to eat or drink cause you to feel miserable with a touch of acid indigestion... Be wise. Alkalize with Alka-Seltzer. Yes, just dissolve an Alka-Seltzer tablet or two in a glass of water, then drink it. You see, Alka-Seltzer not only offers prompt relief for the full, stuffy feeling of acid indigestion, but it also helps reduce excess gastric acidity. Remember then, won't you? When occasional acid indigestion comes along, be wise. Alkalize with Alka-Seltzer. All druggists have Alka-Seltzer in 30 and 60 cent size packages. And they also serve it by the glass at their soda fountains. And now, the news of the world. First, our London observer, Alex Dreyer, has a special treat for us. Come in, Alex. This is London. It now can be told that Captain Randolph Churchill, the 31-year-old son of the Prime Minister, is fighting with the commando units in North Africa. This afternoon, this correspondent heard from one who should know what he's talking about, Further details of Lieutenant General Clark's intrepid mission to North Africa prior to our landing. The man who provided the details was none other than the ranking British commando officer whose function it was to see that Clark landed, was well guarded while on land, and that the American officers got away safely. Unfortunately, for reasons of security, those further details of how the mission operated so smoothly cannot be revealed now. The three commando officers on the mission were well-versed in the art of approaching coastal points with a minimum of difficulty. To them, it was but another job all in the day's work. The ranking British commando officer of that mission is sitting with me here in the studio now. 
And after this broadcast, we're pitting our skill against the blackout and going out in a combined operation to find the London equivalent of a hamburger. And that means sausage or potato and bread. But not even a commando will be able to find much meat in a British sausage. An aerial gunner of the Royal Air Force who has made several trips to Genoa via the Lancaster bomber told me tonight that the smoke screen for the city always seems to work against the Italians. For the smoke, instead of covering the city as it's supposed to do, blows out the sea instead. The Italians, he says, are obviously aware of the fact, but nevertheless they still keep their smoke pots along the coastline. Only one of the hundreds of bombers which have raided the city has failed to return. Incidentally, there have been no bombs in this country for exactly two weeks. And that's the longest lull since the heavy blitzes of May 1940. The last time bombs were dropped was on the afternoon of November 6th, when a hit-and-run raider attacked points along the East Anglian coast. Very little enemy opposition has been met in our recent daylight blasts against the European continent. A good part of the Luftwaffe has gone south. And now, this is Alex Dreyer in London, re returning you to John W. Van de Cook in New York. The Navy Department has issued another report today on the fighting on Guadalcanal. 1,500 Jap troops who were secretly landed on the island beaches east of Henderson Field have now been reduced by half, and the rest have been driven into the forest. That dispatch tells us a good deal about the military picture ashore on Guadalcanal. It helps explain why the Japs who must have landed now anywhere up to 20,000 men all over Guadalcanal have been able so far to make so singularly little concerted or decisive use of them. Guadalcanal is a solid, more or less oval chunk of an island of over 400 square miles in area. With the exception of the northern foreshore, where there are a number of coconut plantations, one of the biggest of which was partly cut down to make room for the airfield. All of Guadalcanal is covered with dense, beautiful forest, and most of it is steeply mountainous. There are no modern roads. Jap troops who have dribbled ashore at many distant beaches, therefore, have simply been forest-bound. They've been unable to move freely or to draw together as a solid, single fighting unit. And the moving of their heavy guns into their tanks over that mountainous and forest-covered terrain has been nearly impossible. So the Japs have been forced to attack us at Henderson Field, of necessity always in small and scattered groups, and not as a whole. And in groups, our superb fighters have consistently disposed of them. And now let's hop back across the Atlantic and across a corner of the Atlas Mountains to North Africa to John McVeigh in Algiers. Algiers had an air raid tonight. And in the opinion of this correspondent, who's watched several hundred air raids, Algiers passed the test well. I was in a big restaurant when the urgent fusillade of anti-aircraft fire shook the windows and blasted the quiet that falls over this North African city after dark. People went on eating and talking. When some guns that seemed to be right under our window began to hammer, about 15 women and perhaps three or four men started toward the shelter. The old Frenchman sitting opposite me said, After all, Monsieur, I fought five years in 1914-1918. What would you? One must not get excited about these things. The old Frenchman got very angry when the waiter told him he'd have to wait for his main dish until they found the cook who'd disappeared after a particularly fierce burst of fire. Going down the stairs, there was the old familiar whistle of a closed bomb, and you slid the rest of the way on your stomach. A crunch of broken glass underfoot brought back memories of the London Blitz. These people aren't yet accustomed enough to raids to be careful. They poked heads out of windows, stood
stood in doorways. Once we heard what sounded like a crippled plane plunging over our heads to ground. I ducked behind an obstruction, just in case, but an Arab boy of about 15 bobbed out in the street to watch. He kept up a running conversation all the time. From the top floor balcony of a hotel, you could see thousands of tracer bullets flaring like Roman candles in the air. You could watch the progress of unseen planes by following the direction of the jetting fountains of white and red tracers. The thump of the heavier bursts crashed over the flares. The front windows of our hotel were knocked out. When the streams of fire seemed whizzing perilously close to the regional hotel, you ducked behind the balcony. But some Frenchmen on the next balcony were leaning far out, trying to see the plane overhead. The British and American gun teams had a good practice tonight. You could follow the fire beginning miles away across the bay, then closer and closer until it seemed the whole harbor was filled with streams of shells. It was just like the old days at Dover, watching the raiders come over in the summer of 1940, just after the fall of France. The raid tonight, so far anyway, hasn't been of any real importance. There may have been half a dozen planes over once apiece, or two or three planes coming over more often. But they ran into plenty of anti-aircraft fire, and they didn't seem to be pressing their attacks against that screen of high explosives. And the people of Algiers are telling each other tonight that the Allies have surely got plenty of power right where Algerians can see it. And they're pleased to know, incidentally, that flying fortresses were over knocking out German planes today on the Al Alawina airfield at Tunis. Now, this is John McBain in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. Yesterday in Vichy, Marshal Patin, a short speech, nailed his personal badly stained flag once more to Hitler's mast. Today, his so-called heir, Crown Prince Pierre Laval, followed suit and has declared again his deep attachment to the cause of Germany. It's almost as if one could detect in the wings the shadowy figure of a Gestapo man in his black uniform, with a rawhide whip in hand, prompting the words of the little puppet actors whom he has thrust out on the lighted stage. A union with the Reich babbled the French lawyer, who wears a white necktie like the ghost of a hangman's noose, is the only guarantee for peace in Europe. I was always certain Germany would be the victor. The dictator of what once was France then predicted with a smooth evasion that France is not lost. The day will come when the banner of France will fly alone over Algiers. And in a confessional mood, Laval went on record that he had always been of the same mind by saying he had worked always for an understanding with Germany and, Hitler, and Italy, and that from the beginning of this war he had believed, quote, it was useless and all was lost in advance. The Nazis this time, by putting Pétain and Laval unmistakably and publicly again on record, seem to be making very sure that in future no more of their henchmen like Admiral Darlan can ever retrace their steps or change their minds or their allegiance. And now let's listen to our on-the-spot reporter in Washington. Come in, Morgan Beatty. Today's resume in Washington is the same old story with a couple of new twists. The story of the struggle for American unity and war production. A story that one day will be described as one of the most fascinating, cliffhanging episodes in our history. The hair-raising nature of the turns along the road to unity are demonstrated today by Bill Green of the American Federation of Labor. Mr. Green put out a statement for the press that begins this way. The action of the National Labor Relations Board in issuing a complaint against 
three Henry Kaiser shipyards on the West Coast, said Mr. Green, is the outstanding Axis victory of the month. Then the AFL leader proceeded to praise Henry J. Kaiser as a progressive employer. Incidentally, the board's complaint accuses the AFL and Kaiser of, boy, we have a hard time with this word, of discriminatory tactics. Now, until a hearing has been held and the record is made public, the Labor Board's charges are mere charges. They haven't been proved. But even though the board's all wrong and somebody, maybe a rival union, should be guilty of Mr. Green's countercharges, even though this be true, still unexplained is the use of the phrase, the outstanding Axis victory of the month. That phrase was at Mr. Green's first paragraph, and naturally the newsmen pounced on it. We wonder, do you suppose that could have been put there in haste? Or did the AFL deliberate a while? Did they count ten before they spoke? Or did they count only the advantage of the front page? That kind of a statement would command the outstanding Axis victory of the month. We don't know, but we suggest an inner voice could have told the AFL that this is pretty close to careless use of freedom of speech. And it invites the AFL's enemies to invent an answering epithet until the contest becomes a contest for bigger and better bad names instead of internal peace and progress toward national unity. And then up on the hill, the Senate fought another round with itself on the poll tax question. It's beginning to look as if they found a way to avoid a complete self-inflicted knockout and get around a showdown on the poll tax. And here's a late bulletin from the newsroom. Forty percent of the nation's total butter in storage has been frozen for government purchase. It's a temporary measure to ensure sufficient supplies to meet the needs of the armed forces and lend lease. The Agriculture Department said that the freeze order would result in a sharp reduction of civilian supplies inasmuch as the current production of butter is insufficient to meet civilian and war needs too. And that's all from Washington for now. More news in a moment. Fewer green vegetables on the table and the dreary cloudy days of fall and winter cut down on your chances of getting your regular vitamins A and D from natural sources. So make sure that you and your family are getting these two important vitamins this easy, pleasant way. Take one-a-day brand vitamin A and D tablets made by Miles Laboratories. Each one-a-day A and D tablet is guaranteed to provide not just your minimum daily requirements of these so-called cod liver oil vitamins, but actually 25% more. They're economical, too, and so pleasant to the taste no one minds taking them at all. So remember, when you ask your druggist for vitamins A and D, make it one-a-day brand vitamin A and D tablets. The large family size package, which contains a two-month supply for three persons, costs only $2.15. Remember, one-a-day is the registered trademark of Miles Laboratories. So be sure you get the genuine one-a-day brand, made by Miles. And for your B vitamins, get one-a-day B-complex tablets made by Miles. Look for the big one on the package. Now, back to the newsroom. Moscow, the latest Red Army victory over the Nazis at that unpronounceable key town to one of the few passes over the Caucasus Mountains. The one that goes something like Odzionyekidzi, and that's harder than Morgan Beatty's discriminatory, it is now announced has produced a general German retreat in that sector. Fleeing invaders have scattered to the snowy foothill forests with the Russians pell-mell after them. And that's the news of the world. This is John W. Vandercook speaking for Alka-Seltzer. Until Monday at this same time, goodbye from the newsroom in New York.
This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank mm-hmm. you.